Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Kanaka Rajan. Kanaka is an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Kanaka, welcome to the Twimble AI Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to jumping into our conversation. We'll be talking about your work in the field of computational neuroscience. But to get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you've come to bridge the worlds of biology and artificial intelligence. Thank you. I sort of took a circuitous route to getting into neuroscience and specifically computational neuroscience. I was trained in engineering and physics. And then, you know, I sort of collected fields along the way. (laughs) I thought I was going to be an experimental neuroscientist when I first got to graduate school. And then I was very quickly dissuaded of that particular delusion of mine. And I thought, okay, I should stick to at least the tools that I have acquired in my various dabblings across fields. And so computational neuroscience seemed like the perfect melding sphere for such a thing. So that's essentially how I've gotten here. Nice. And what was it about the experimental approach that you didn't find appealing? I do find it incredibly exciting and challenging. So that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't hands either, right? Once somebody showed me how to do experiments, I could do them. Yeah. Um, And the reason I know this is because, you know, we do rotations in graduate school. You show up and you spend eight weeks or 10 weeks in somebody's lab. So I did like four experimental rotations at Brandeis University with, you know, world-class experimentalists. My issue was the complete inability to design experiments. So, you know, I would show up the next day and it would still be completely blank slate. I'd be like, okay, now tell me what to do. I didn't have the same sorts of issues with computational stuff. So, you know, it was really a fork. I had to decide, should I spend the next 10 years trying to get better at designing this whole other complicated, incredibly rich field? Or should I just take my tools and attack a sliver, a slightly different sliver of the same problem? Nice, nice. Tell us a little bit about your research writ large. What are the broad questions and issues that interest you? So I work exactly at the interface between AI, artificial intelligence, ML, and experimental neuroscience. So the the field that I work in straddles both. What I do for a living can be described as building Lego models of the brain. So what I want to do is to build Essentially, you know, a model that makes like the Death Star and looks like a Death Star, but it's actually engineered by me as an artificial system. Okay. I have built it to mimic something the biological brain does. My goal is then to reverse engineer this Lego Death Star and see what makes it tick. And then, of course, the rest is a little bit of hope and prayer and a little bit of hard science to say, well, is this the same operating principles that the biological brain uses? So I build essentially artificial models that make like the biological brain, but are much more simplified and engineered. And it sounds like you're referring to the brain as a whole, meaning you're 
trying to build what I might call like end-to-end models of the brain or comprehensive models of the brain, as opposed to simplified models of particular subsystems within the brain? Is that the idea? Or is it? I would say both. Okay. So there are models of the brain that I build, which are more like behavior level models, right? I could take an artificial, you know, I build neural network models within this class of essentially computational modeling. Yeah. And I can train these neural network models to capture a behavior of the whole organism. Like, for example, if you're standing in front of an elevator bank and both doors open, which one do you pick? That kind of decision making. Mm-hmm. Or counting while you're walking, estimating time, learning, remembering, deciding, those types of behaviors. So that would be in the category that you just mentioned of brain writ large, because they're capturing behavior of the whole organism. But within it, I also built multi-region neural network models, which would capture the interactions between interconnected brain areas. And so that is a much more granular, more biologically grounded sort of system. And that may or may not capture behavior, but what this model does is capture the dynamics or the neural activity over time from all of these brain regions. So we can certainly build whole brain models at both the behavior and the neural level. And I think I build both kinds of models and any combination of the two. Got it. Got it. One of the things I found fascinating about your work is particular to this, well, I don't even know if it's limited to behavior or dynamics, you know, one versus the other, but this idea of looking at cognitive processes that, you know, may manifest as a kind of a split second decision about an elevator and then drilling into how they play out at all kinds of different timescales. Can you elaborate a little bit on that idea and how you dig into that? Sure. So there's a tension in neuroscience in general, right? When you want to understand something about the biological brain, there's a tension. The building blocks, the Lego that I just mentioned, the building blocks are much, much faster, right? The neurons are at working at millisecond timescale. Mm-hmm. They're connected with synapses and those dynamics are at most hundreds of milliseconds. And yet, you know, I have to show my niece or nephew or godchild how to solve this elevator problem, which elevator button to press and how to go to. But this kid is going to remember this for the duration of their lifetimes. Yeah. So there's essentially a tension between the timescales of the building blocks and the timescales of behaviors and learning of behaviors over lifetimes, essentially. So that somehow the biological system bridges seamlessly. Artificial systems are less good at this. But both fields like AIML and neuroscience are both kind of geared towards this fundamental tension. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you know my work has been able to do is to exploit a certain feature of a type of neural network models, which are called recurrent neural network models, sometimes RNNs uh, for short. And those are characterized by connections between active neuron-like units going forwards and backwards. So they have feed-forward and feedback connections. This lets them have long-range dynamics. So what that means is that they can have ongoing patterns of neural-like activity, essentially in perpetuity. However, I can engineer this RNN to have model elements that are still fast, like like the neural timescale. So there's a fundamental feature of these types of models that it has a convenient feature. So one of the things that me and several people who work on RNNs are 
working on is to say, well, can we use this natural feature of this type of neural network model as a substrate on which to build this Lego model that has other functionality? Like, can I get this recurrent neural network model to solve the elevator problem? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the brain doesn't just do the elevator problem, right? Like this kid recognizes elevators from a picture book, even if it isn't a real elevator. It can solve escalators. And there's a lot of flexibility. That is a harder problem. So yes, I can exploit the mathematics of recurrent neural network models and their ability to produce long timescales, but I still have to engineer them so they have the flexibility to do many different things all over long timescales using the same machinery that only biology has access to, which inconveniently for us, biology is gnarly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in talking about this, the human side of this equation, one of the things that comes to mind is memory. And, you know, certainly RNNs have a form of memory, you know, but then you also talk about kind of dynamics you know, we think of memory in a lot of ways as kind of this static snapshot of either some rules or view of the world or something like that. Dynamics, well, sounds more dynamic, right? It's like the evolving state of the system. And I'm wondering, can you kind of put some color on that, like the relationship between memory and dynamically evolving system states? So that's an outstanding question. And you've really hit the nail right on the head. So this is a fundamental thing. Like what you're asking about is a fundamental feature, right? We have to reconcile the ongoing nature of this neural activity, right? Even if my eyes are closed, there's patterns of activity swirling in my brain with the fact that I still remember the elevator problem from when I was like five years old, but that has to be the static piece. right? And that's kind of how people thought memory used to work. So in fact, the earlier model, earliest models of memory were like the Hopfield model, all involved this idea of what are known in my field as fixed points. But that just involves saying, let's say I want to remember two things, right? What I would do is take a group of neurons over here, elevate their firing rate to a certain static value, and that's a memory. If I want to remember another thing, I take another group of neurons over here, I elevate their firing rate to some other number and I leave it there. Mm -hmm. So that number doesn't change. And for however long it does not change, I have remembered object A and object B. That's how people used to think memory used to work. And so then experiments were designed to test this model. So they would have animals that were making movements based on remembering a number or making decisions and so forth. Because experimental technologies like way back when were still, you know, pretty pretty simple compared to what they're able to do now. And they observed such activity anyway in the brain. Then came this revolution in neuroscience where people were able to record electrical activity from the brain while animals were doing much more complicated versions of the same problem. So there's a version of this elevator problem where you've taken this kid, strapped them down, and only forced them to make a choice with their eyeballs, which elevator to get into. Or you have this version of the problem where this child is walking towards the elevator and making a decision while all this ongoing activity is occurring, all this dynamics of the movement are occurring. And then, you know, the door opens, there's a pause and the kid can get into the elevator. So there is dynamics, but the kid hasn't forgotten the elevator problem. Mm -hmm. How might this work? So one of my postdoc papers involved proposing this idea of What if it's not fixed points? What if it is 
waves of activity, or in other words, sequences. Right. So this is, you know, individual neurons only fire for a short duration. But if you look at the whole population, there's like a wave that goes through where each neuron has a temporally kind of sparse bump. But if you tile all of the bumps together, you get the same duration. But now it's essentially doing what the fixed point used to be doing, but it's a much more robust way that has both features. It has steady representation during the period for which you want the memory to be represented, mm -hmm. but you also have dynamics because this activity is actually moving. Mm -hmm. And so now we're proposing more advanced versions of this hypothesis. And we're saying, what if it's not even sequences in our kinds of tasks, right? Like I'm talking to you, but I also remember I've got to keep an eye on the time because how long have I rambled about sequences? So, so now I'm thinking if you were to record electrical activity in my brain, it's unlikely to be just sequences. Maybe it's some other high dimensional repeating pattern. So we have advanced these types of theories to incorporate both features, the stability of the memory that you asked about along with the ongoing dynamics that is true of biological brains. Yeah. So you proposed as an example, this very simple model of memory where you're trying to, your subject is remembering two quantities and those kind of map one-to-one -to, -one to firing rates of neurons. You know, that's compelling from an experimentation perspective, but then you think about, okay, these abstract concepts like elevators and dog and cat and all these things that we're amazing at remembering. What do we know about how memory works at that level? Like it's starting to call to mind ideas like theory of mind and, and stuff like that that are kind of abstract. How close are we to understanding how all that machinery works? Great question, to which I only have a waffly answer. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot. <laughs> so unfortunately, the state of the field, well, I shouldn't be so super pessimistic about it. So let me try that answer. Yeah. So we're all trained in the physical sciences to some degree. And so our mm -hmm. instinct is to clear the deck first. So you present me with a problem like this, but I, my instinct is to clear the deck and produce the most simple form of this question that I can handle with some nice mathematical formulation. Mm -hmm. And that's what I attempted to do with talking about working memory and so forth. And I yeah. think experimentalists have a version of the exact same issue, right? They do, they take this very complicated animal with all of its inner richness and theories of mind, and then they essentially kind of strap it down and force it to make one little movement or another. Right. So there's a version of this that's true of both sides of the aisle. Right. So there's that instinct. That instinct has the benefit that I can say something general now about memory. Right. I can talk to you about the same or similar problem being solved in multiple different nervous systems. So I can say, well, this is how a larval zebrafish would do this, how a mouse would do this, rat would do this, macaque would do this, humans would do this. And then I can, as a theorist, I have the privilege to sit back and say, is there something fundamental that unifies all of these different models that I have built into something that starts to look like a theory? Is there a conserved or a unified theory of memory that is true of nervous system, independent of the details of it? That's the advantage. The disadvantage is I lose all of the other details that make biology interesting. So for example, I'm not talking about any kind of synaptic dynamics, right? I'm not talking about 
neuromodulators. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about evolution even, right? The models we build right. start from this kind of random soupy thing and then are overtrained to solve this elevator problem to perfection. But that's that clearly not how biology works at all. So mm-hmm. yes, it's got the pros and the cons to it. But I'm saying like in order to span all of those levels, sort of vertical and horizontal integration to produce a satisfactory answer, we're not not even close yeah. to those big questions. Right, right, right. You mentioned that your research kind of led to this idea of RNNs as the substrate for building more complex models of memory and I think maybe more importantly, behavior. When I hear substrate, I think of platform building blocks, you're combining them in different ways. Elaborate on that idea a bit more. So I find RNNs to be a convenient substrate to capture several different features of the biological brain or neural circuits that I'm interested in, right? Mm -hmm. So one convenient piece of this is the fact that they have forward-going and backward-going connections, which are true of biological brains, independent of species and granularity and so forth. They are also mathematically simple, which helps me. But then also, in, with reference to the previous question, I have to let go of a lot of details. RNNs have this ongoing dynamics. They can be coursed and trained to do many different behaviors. So there's those conveniences. Yeah. But I can also expand a single module into multiple regions, right? I can pretend. So when you look at the complex nervous systems like mammalian nervous systems, mouse and and humans and macaques and so forth. There are anatomical partitions and there are functional partitions of neural circuits into sometimes brain areas, right? Mm -hmm. But how those brain areas are defined, you can abstract that idea into each area as an RNN. You can say, I have an RNN that makes like, you know, a region that senses stress. I have another RNN is a region that says, okay, I've had this much stress and I'm going to shut down the system now. And those two in conjunction will start get at questions in the brain, like how do two regions interact, sometimes compete and sometimes cooperate. So you've suddenly gone from a circuit level model of one RNN as the brain to multi-region RNNs, which have now gone to a multi-circuit level. Now you train that multi-circuit RNN to do a behavior and pretty soon you've spanned three different levels. You've got the individual circuits, multi-area circuits to the whole organism. Now, expecting this model to also capture details of the molecular machinery may be beyond us at the moment. It's a little bit of a kitchen sink flavor of modeling, but, but you know, this is what you can do with them. You can treat the RNN as its own module and explore its features, or you can treat it as a building block on which to build other functionality. Like you can take the RNN and train it to do many different tasks. You can take the RNN and hook more of them together to build multi-region RNNs. And so that's the sense in which it's a versatile and convenient substrate. Got it. And when you talk about training RNNs to do different tasks in this context, what are some of the types of tasks that you're training these RNNs to do, these networks to do? and what well what's the training procedure look like are you what does the data look like are you training them end to end versus subsystem tell us a little bit more about how you're using the rnns 
So let me do this question sort of more specifically, right? So one of the things that we're working on in the lab is this project called curriculum learning. And so this came about because we were frustrated by the limitations of current training algorithms. And, you know, we didn't invent this. Machine learning and AI engineers innovated this amazing concept. Mm -hmm. It was originally even inspired by psychophysics, where, you know, when you train an experimental animal or watch a child learn by imitation or something, there's a shaping to this behavior. The behavior is shaped by means of reinforcement. And that then led to the idea of using curriculum learning, like different syllabi, where the task you want a system to learn increases in complexity slowly. And so you can find that you can train networks to do things better. Now, in the work that I had done before we came upon this, we used to use standard training algorithms, which were which didn't resemble biology and didn't do that well anyway. So there's two flavors of the types of things. One involved training networks to do tasks using something like backpropagation. It turns out that if you scale up network sizes, you can get these networks to do a lot of things. However, when tasks get complicated over long periods of time, backpropagation wasn't doing so hot. Sure. So then we do the other flavor of work where we train the individual units inside the RNN to match experimental data collected from individual neurons in the biological system. That targets sort of a different problem, but they're both wildly unrealistic. They don't even smell like something the biological system may have used to get the animal into the state where it can perform these things. Meaning we know that we don't learn on a module by module basis and we learn more holistically? Right, exactly, right? So we learn by doing a simple version of the task first. Then we mm-hmm. stack on a slightly more complicated thing if the first thing paid off. If the escalation step in task complexity is kind of, you know, very minuscule, then you have the option of testing out. Yeah. So we thought what we would do is to train RNNs using curricula. Mm-hmm. My team and I are designing different curricula. So for example, one of the tasks, let's go back to our famous elevator problem, right? Our elevator problem has features of navigation because you have to walk from your apartment or your office to the elevator. It has indications of working memory because you want, when the doors open, you want to be able to estimate which side has more people or fewer people. And then you want to hold that in memory while you make a decision to make a turn and go into the elevator that has, let's say, a few people. So it's almost like a two alternative choice feeling, but it also has evidence accumulation. So what we're trying to do is instead of taking a network and saying, okay, here's the full-blown elevator problem, solve it. What we're doing is training the network as though it were a person being trained. So we can have multiple different curricula, right? One in which first both elevators are blank, right? Whichever elevator bank you choose, you get a role. So that's the first step. The second one is you put one person in the elevator. Let's say the network has mastered this. Then you put one person in the elevator. Then if the network goes to the side that has no people, you give it a reward. Then you escalate this slowly and slowly, and then it starts to get at things like, let's say there were a thousand people in one elevator and a hundred in the other. Does this network really need to count one through thousand in one elevator and one through hundred in the other? Brute force will suggest yes. But what we've found is that if you train networks using a curriculum, 
not only can it do much more complicated tasks than the naive version of the training, yeah. it can also do many more of these elevators simultaneously. So network starts to intuit something like feels like. Hmm. If you're standing in front of the elevator and one has a thousand people and one has a hundred, you'll kind of feel like the one that has a hundred is easier to get to. We don't know what feels like looks like in the brain. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, because we now can build these networks that have gone through the same or at least qualitatively similar shaping. So I can say you've got to record from region X where the signal should look like this particular signal to indicate what feels like feels like. So these are this powerful class of models yeah. that are now being now building and using for all kinds of biological mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Now, when I hear you describe this particular task and how the network approaches it under this curriculum learning regime, like I think about the, you know, that ultimate task of counting or deciding based on the number of people in the elevator, which one to choose as being, I'm imagining it to be very different from the penultimate step, right? It's not like I'm imagining that that step immediately before was not about the same problem, the number of inhabitants or people in the elevator, which is suggesting to me that this feels like is maybe akin to like the deep levels in CNN where like training structure in some way and that structure is useful to the ultimate problem solving task. I'm trying to think through and want to talk through the relationship between that kind of low level structure and feels and like how those things connect to one another. It's an incredible question to ask. So really, you're right. Like the penultimate step before this problem is solved is not 999 people in one. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So really what you're asking is what makes a good curriculum and what makes a bad curriculum? So given Mm -hmm. that I want to teach this animal that I've just adopted to get into the elevator unassisted, for example, what would make a good curriculum? The argument we're making is just by watching two completely trained, let's say dogs, two completely trained dogs getting into the elevator will not be able to tell you the routes that they took to get there. So we don't have all of the answers to this problem. But we know that by testing different curricula, all of which end in the dog being able to solve the elevator problem, we are able to discern how the biological circuitry's inside structure would have been shaped. In this case, pun intended. Mm -hmm. But the analogy that you set up with the structure of the weights or the weight space within a CNN progressing through a training protocol is exactly what we're looking at. So we're looking at, you know, in epoch by epoch or as the task complexity increases, what happens to this weight matrix? Are you learning something that looks, are you solving the navigation problem first, the working memory problem next, and then the counting problem last? Is that the structure you see evolving? Or do you see the counting emerging first? Because counting is kind of like a lookup table. And then, you know, doing the navigation, then doing the working memory piece. And the answer I'm going to give you is there isn't a one step. 
the simpler a task is, one might argue that this counting task is simple compared to the kinds of tasks that humans and macaques can do. The number of routes by which you can learn and therefore the number of curricula that can still approach the final state are big, are many. Mm -hmm. So the more complex something is, the smaller the solution space appears to be. Therefore, if there are multiple curricula or multiple different learning trajectories that can approach that solution space, then they will then the solutions will also look kind of similar. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depends on the task that you want it to solve, the routes that the structure will take to approach it. But without putting networks through something like this, you wouldn't have the foggiest idea, right? Like if two dogs walked into a bar and say we can both juggle, our current go-to involves recording from their brains and looking at squiggles in state space. But you won't be able to tell if the first dog learned in Boston, the second dog learned in New York, and how they were trained. But by following their trajectories, learning trajectories, or even mimicking their learning trajectories in network models, we might be able to make progress. And so in this work, are the curricula that you're presenting these networks with, are those explicitly designed by you or are the curricula themselves learned or do you look at like a curricula like a hyperparameter and you're you know maybe doing some automated search across them oh see that's a very good so that i feel like now i'm gonna open my notebook and take notes <laughs> right now we're limited by sadly my imagination so we're hand designing this curriculum okay because our first goal, so what we discovered when we first did this was, yes, we can tell those two dogs apart that walked into a bar and can juggle identically. So that was the big win. Then we said, let's look in literature. We have this vast network of experimental collaborators. And by just to put a point on that, by telling these two dogs apart, what you mean more concretely is you've built these models, you've trained them using these different curricula to be successful at the same end task. And you can distinguish between kind of the things that they've learned in the ways. The strategies yeah. that they would yeah. use. So did one learn by means of reward and the other by means of imitation? Those would be sort of two different types of learning that these animals can experience and still get to mastery. Right. But okay. by doing curriculum learning, I'll be able to distinguish those two because different learning rules will benefit to different degrees to different curricula. So the first observation was this, different learning principles will benefit uh, to different degrees to the choice of the curriculum. So you can use that curriculum learning as a tool to disambiguate learning principles in the biological brain. So then we went to look in literature to say, well, have people looked at this type of, you know, have people systematically put their animals through shaping protocols and can they share these types of data with us? We found that people rarely systematically collect, curate, or publish curriculum learning type data, right? Because different labs have different shaping protocols that they put their experimental animals through. A lot of it is trial and error. Like the senior postdoc designed the shaping protocol that happened to work for the mouse, so we're all going to do it. There's also tricky features because, as I had mentioned, biology is gnarly. So a lot of the actual shaping involves just getting the animal to behave while being handled. 
So there's all these complications that we're not interested in modeling with our models. Got it. So what we wanted to do with the first paper is to say, well, we're just going to say curriculum learning as a tool to disambiguate learning. Inspire experimentalists to much more carefully collect, curate, and then hopefully share with us details of these experiments, collect what syllabus worked, what syllabus did not work. I mean, just because 75% of the animals learned and 25 failed to learn the task you were trying to get them to learn does not mean that they've failed. That means that the curriculum could have been tweaked in a better way. Mm -hmm. So that's the first goal. The next goal is certainly to go in the directions that you have suggested, which is to say, well, can we say something more general about which types of tasks will respond to which types of curriculum? And then can we auto-engineer those? Can we train networks to follow some kind of low-energy path through the space of possible curriculum? That would be a home run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's a question at the end of this, but it strikes me that the way you're approaching the problem starts to poke at issues of like nature versus nurture and like how can we capture what nurture really means and that kind of thing? Is that something that you think about? I do, but not in a terribly coherent way. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, if this is not really my wheelhouse at all. Yeah. I mean, my knee jerk is to say, yes, of course, they're both important. Yeah. I think for me personally, the key is not to take my tools and my models so seriously that I conflate them with reality. Yeah. For me, the win is not that I can write, even though I was trained in that school of thought, is to write down the most elegant, simple mathematical solution and so forth. Yes, there's a little kick to it. The better kick is if I make this prediction about the juggling dogs and one of my experimental collaborators said, oh, yeah, now this really worked mm -hmm. or this really didn't work. That's the win if it is validated or falsified biological data, because that's where reality is, is the biological system. Yeah. Now, if I were an engineer still, uh, ML practitioner died in the wool, I would be like, well, what is the smallest network I can build that can do the most things? Mm -hmm. I'm not. So I'm interested in, with all the warts and wrinkles of biology, what in the brain is tracking, you know, which task is currently happening and when it's time to switch, right? I'm having this yeah. conversation with you. I'm watching the time, you know, you are doing the same thing. And so we're like, somebody in the brain is tracking this yeah. in the biological brain. And we're not terribly good at either, right? As you can see from some of my rambling answers, the timekeeping and answering coherently. So with all these wrinkles, I want to understand the functioning of the biological brain. I am aware that the tools aren't perfect. They weren't evolved. And this gets to your question. They didn't go through a process of evolution. They're missing a whole lot of biological details. So, you know, I call them units. I don't even call them neurons. And so I think it's another one of those questions where we have to say, well, can I tackle a sliver of this problem? And a sliver of that problem is now we're able to train these networks over very long periods of time. As I explained with the curriculum learning, it takes weeks to train an experimental animal to do one of these tasks that they do in the lab. So can I play that game further over a developmental trajectory? 
I don't have terribly clever ideas for that because the hardware and the software are changing constantly in such a problem. But it's one that I'm excited to dive into in the next phase of my career. Yeah, yeah. I particularly appreciate you calling out the distinction between developing a tool that may have some predictive value versus kind of getting caught up in, you know, your tool and taking it to be representative of the actual thing itself. You know, you mentioned closed form kind of equations around this, you know, simplified model that you make. I find it conversations around the biology in particular, I often like I want to go there. It's like I need to like really rein myself in and make the distinction between the model and the thing being modeled. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. You put it extremely eloquently. I think anyone that's trained in the physical sciences has that tension because mm. we want to right? we want to write down a formula and be done with it. Yeah. But I think to understand, I mean, I remember this like feeling of shock as I walked into an experimental lab as a postdoc, as a legitimate theorist, right? And mm -hmm. I go, oh my God, nothing is as I thought it would be at all. <laughs> I mean, what even is going on? And you realize, okay, you're in a whole other other game now. Biology is not. It's going to, my prediction is we're not going to have anything that looks like a grand unified theory. Like, name a brain function. I think mm -hmm. we're going to have a pile of models and then a holistic understanding will emerge from such a thing. That's so disappointing. I've uh, spoken and written about how I'm a sucker for grand unified theories. <laughs> kind of go back to a, a point that you made earlier, the relationship or distinction between I, there's a lot of ways we could come at it, but, you know, training these kind of complex hierarchical systems of RNNs module by module or unit by unit versus kind of end to end. And I asked about that unit by unit versus end to end or in isolation versus end to end. And you responded with, you train them in curricula. But I don't know, to me, those don't come as like orthogonal things. You could train, you could use curricula, you know, the idea of curricular learning, but unit by unit as opposed to end to end. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, which of those, or do you experiment with all of those or like? I think it depends on the problem. So okay. the answer is closer to experiment with all of them. So one of the key distinctions I need to draw here is that the word learning is used by multiple different communities to mean different things. Sure. Right. When uh, when experimental neuroscientists, biologists talk about talk about learning, they're talking about the, the process the animal has experienced. It's all experiential state. When you and I talk about learning, we're talking about a training algorithm, really. So in some sense, it's kind of the details of the problem. And the answer is, I'm getting these networks into a state where once I stop training them, they can autonomously produce the relevant dynamics that manifests in the time-varying behavior consistent with biology. Um, and so it, it kind of depends. Sometimes I do them unit by unit. Sometimes you would have to train the unit's activations along with the behavior. Or sometimes you want to abandon all of them and put them through a curriculum. Uh, but within the curriculum, you can, again, play with both of those. So it sort of depends on the problem. Mm -hmm. And in my case, 
the problem isn't sort of cooked up in vacuum. It is also inspired by something weird in experiments. An experimental observation that I've read about or one of my collaborators tells me about, that's how usually a problem gets sparked. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can get networks to do something like that. Mm. And what's an example of that? So an example of that would be something that looks like sequences, right? So this was one of my earliest, I would say, you know, discoveries, if, I'm, if I may be so bold as to use that term. <laughs> People were seeing sequences everywhere. They see sequences. By sequences, I mean, you know, time-varying patterns of activity. Every neuron is only firing a smallish bump. But over the population, it looks like a wave going through. People see that in the hippocampus, they see that in the prefrontal cortex, they see that in the striatum, they see this in anatomically wildly different areas, and they see them all over the place. They see them during working memory, they see them during you know, place fields and place cells, they see them during navigation, learning, remembering, any function. There's a ubiquitousness to this, the fact that people see sequences. And that led me to wonder, well, what if it's an accident? Like, we can't stop sorting things. Is that why we're seeing sequences? That's how the problem first started. Then we came up with this theory of they're doing a fundamental function, which is remembering how long a task is occurring and when it's time to switch. So I'm having this conversation with you. I'm also thinking about time, let's say, right? Something in the brain is, has to have steady representation during the performance of this answer. It has to switch when it's time to ask the next question or answer the next question. Something that has that feature, independent of the underlying anatomy, is sequences. Because right. they're steady, they're, the wave goes through, but it has a start time and an end time. Now, of course, if I zorch the neurons that are making the sequence, I'm not able to do this task properly, right? I keep sipping my cup of coffee and put it down repeatedly. But why I'm failing maybe differing from what we think, right? Maybe we're failing because the state tracker is broken. And mm -hmm. so we're now trying to get this into a frame where we're starting to talk about things like addictions and obsessive problems. That what if mm -hmm. we're looking at the problem sort of much more narrowly than we need to? What if these disorders share the feature that, you know, if I take a sip of a glass of wine and put it down, I know the action is finished because once I put the glass down, but what if I didn't? Or there's something that is tracking that I've taken a sip and put it down is broken. Then I keep doing it obsessively for a length of time. And so that's an example of a weird biological feature, repetitive action until something is finished or inability to stop performing an action that could be cast as a fundamental property of neural circuits and therefore neural circuit dysfunction. And that was this observation that we're seeing sequences everywhere. Gee, I wonder why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was going to ask about the kind of the end goal of the research. You identify this quirk, let's say, in experimental results. You try to create a model for it. So now you have this tool, and it sounds like at least one of the objectives here is that the tool can then be a launching point for deeper inquiry. Is that how you see the work playing out? That's right. So one, we can better leverage existing data, right? I mean, we can say like people should share data with us because they're collecting it anyway by process of training these animals. You better leverage existing data. 
You can mm-hmm. use these models as essentially an, a bottomless pit of hypotheses. So you can do experiments on them that you wouldn't be able to either ethically or technologically or financially do in the real system. So you can, in some sense, fail faster if you tried all those ideas on these substrate models. And so, yes, they are essentially tools for deeper inquiry. At the very, very least, they generate predictions for the next experiment, which can then, you know, validate or falsify. And then I go back to the drawing board, refine the model. So all of the collaborations that I have involve this kind of intimate recursive back and forth. Is the use of the tool necessarily, I'm envisioning like a simulation type of an approach to use the tools. Is that the way it tends to work or is it something else? That's right. That's exactly right. So these models are mathematical models that are then simulated in essentially computer programs, right? And so we can do the manipulations in the program that you wouldn't be able to necessarily do. Use them to extract features from data that are inaccessible from just measurements alone. Yeah. So that kind of inquiry, these models lend themselves to. Great, great. Well, Kanaka, thank you so much for sharing a bit about what you're working on with us. Very fascinating and looking forward to keeping in touch and learning more. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.